Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles, and we have an incredible guest on the episode this week. Dr. J.P. Moreland will be coming up very soon, talking about his new book, Finding Quiet, and we talk all about his ministry and his experience. But before we get to that, we have a couple of news things. First and foremost, we always want to remind you of Impact 360, such an awesome organization. They have those two- and one-week camps for high schoolers, teach them apologetics, teach them about the Christian worldview. So we encourage you to check out those camps. You can go to impact360.org and really encourage you to check out that one-week camp called Propel, really focusing on creating Christ-centered cultural influencers. And so go to impact360.org. And you can sign up for any of the online courses they have on there. And if you use the promo code FREEMIND, you can get $25 off any of those. And we've got some other events going on. That's right. That's right, Brother Robles. Hey. Um, So next week, we're going to be in Nashville, October 3rd, Thursday night. We're going to do an album. we got our new album finally done. Come on, somebody. Hey. Can I get a shout? I'm I'm two years late. (laughs) But no, we finally got it done, and we're going to be premiering it, um, just like a 30-minute premiere thing. But uh, right after that, we're going to do a live podcast filming. Is that the right word these days? Yeah, sure. Filming? Recording? Something like that. Recording, something like that. It's going to be some video involved, brother. Yeah, that's right. With uh, Elisa Childers, um, and that's going to be Thursday night in Nashville. So if you're in the area, we'll put a link below this episode. It's on Eventbrite. If you're in the area, we'd love for you to pop in free tickets. And then two days later, if you're in the Atlanta area, we're going to be at Better Way Ministries at Saturday, October 5th at noon. And we're going to do the same thing there, album recording, and then we're going to do a podcast. We're still working on our guests for that one. But if you're in the area, we'd love for you to come hang. We We might even have public subs, brother. What <laughs> we might have them? Excuse me. Wow. That's that's okay. the that's the utmost sub. That's the real deal. <laughs> that right is. up there with uh, Jersey Mike's. Hey. Oh really? Yeah, man. I don't know about that Jersey Mike's. I mean, wait, is it Jersey Mike's? Yeah, Jersey Mike's. That's the one they cut. They slice that meat fresh. Oh, is it? Yeah, man. Yeah, I don't What's think that? you've What's been that? there. You're thinking uh, of fire subs or whatever. What's and Jimmy the, oh, John's? Is, Jimmy John's. Jimmy That's John's. All right. Publix got Jimmy John's beat. Oh, okay, I think okay, Jersey okay. Mike's might be right up there with Publix. Oh, okay, I was thinking Jimmy John's. We can invite the listeners though if we want to get another. <laughs> <laughs> I did win Wait. over Nerva last time on In and Out. I'm just saying. Oh God! Did you? Yeah, I did win. I was. At, but that was like was by a hair. At, listen. <laughs> Get the W, get the L. It don't okay, matter how much yeah, how much enough. is by. I got it. So <laughs> let's go right now, right here. Is 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 uh, Jersey Mike's as good mm. as Publix? Mm. And then are they both better than Jimmy John's? Okay. Like yeah. Subway and no, fire, Subway's Firehouse not and ain't even in the they ain't even yeah. in the conversation. Subway, no. Subway, they no. they don't took a dive. Now when Quiznos used to be a thing. Oh Ooh, com- no no no! See that? No? Now no. you don't went off page, bro. Oh gosh. Now we, do we, we got to get to JP. Let's, I, all right, I let's can move promise on. you I will well, never, ever <laughs> taste Quiznos ever <laughs> again. Without any further ado, lifetime. here's our interview with Dr. JP Moreland. Well, Dr. Moreland, we're so glad that you joined us on the Free Mind Podcast. And we're all huge fans of your work. Multiple books we've read, uh, like The Kingdom Triangle and your latest book, Finding Quiet. And we'll get to that in a moment. But we'd love to hear just just a brief background for those of our listeners who have not heard of you before or, or may not have known of you. You're a Christian apologist, philosopher, teacher, but can you yourself kind of give us a brief description of how would you describe yourself to uh, someone hearing you the first time? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I was a chemistry major at the University of Missouri, and I came to Christ my junior year in 1968 to Campus Crusade, joined staff. Uh, and I began to do evangelism and discipleship and realized that if we didn't have professors and intellectuals that were Christians, that we could win a lot of people to Christ, but it wouldn't make a difference. So I went on and got uh, a seminary degree and uh, my MA and PhD in philosophy under Dallas Willard, and I've been a professor of uh, philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology, uh, Biola University for 30, uh, 29 years in, in Southern California. And uh, I'm a grandfather with five little grandkids and two adult daughters, married daughters, and uh, a dear wife uh, who is still uh, alive and kicking. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm 71 and, uh, and 
That said, I'm kind of fundamentally an encourager and an evangelist, I guess you'd have to say. And so that's my heart. I I just want to interject something to the listeners that um, this right here, this very interview would be quite a pinnacle for Seth. This is such a moment. And I am like, I'm excited to hear from you, but I'm more excited that Seth is experiencing this because he studied your books and he's read all of your materials and listened to you online. And if you had told us a year ago that we would be having this conversation, there's no way we would have believed it. But I'm so thankful for this moment right now. That's quite an honor, and I and I wish you'd tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, man. We're, I'm, I'm to be uh, completely honest. I'm my heart's beating fast. I'm a little nervous. Right? It's like meeting Michael Jordan finally, you know. <laughs> sure. So, like my, you know, my after, you know, when I go to heaven, I hang out with Jesus and the apostles for a while, hit some of the Old Testament characters. My next thing on the agenda <laughs> was coffee shop with J.P. Dallas Willard, William Lane Craig, and Alvin Plantiga. Just the five of us sitting. You around, need so. you need to get a life, my brother. but no i mean you know you have played such a part in my own discipleship man that to Mm. the the journey that i went on and i've talked about this on the podcast before but really really coming close to losing my faith and walking away from christianity in favor of secularism and and just your works in that area have meant so much to me and and read almost every every, all of your books listen to many of your podcasts and i always i know uh dallas willard used to say philosophers go down deep stay down longer and come up drier than anybody else but you have <laughs> you have the ability to not come up so dry so I, what I try to do to get often other believers uh, thinking a little more critically and carefully is I'll listen to you out loud and, and I'll watch them kind of hover by I'll, not your metaphysics stuff so much but some of your lighter <laughs> right. stuff and uh, I'll watch them kind of hover into the zone and be like oh that's really interesting so you're the you're often the primer I use to get people thinking critically in the body I and, so appreciate that yeah, man. Well, and thank you, my brother. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's, man. So it's our privilege. We actually have, we spent the, sorry, I, I, I know I'm making you super uncomfortable by saying all this right now, but I got to say <laughs> it anyways. I'm going to say it anyways. But we, so I, I, we, my wife and I started a young adult ministry at the Crossing Church in Tampa for 20 somethings. And the textbook for our young adult ministry the first two years was Kingdom Triangle. And uh, I mean, obviously the Bible, but this was this was kind of our our textbook. And I mean, so many of the students were like, "Man, if I hear the word postmodernism one more time, I'm just going <laughs> right. to run out of the out of the room." Good for them. But you know, this was many years back, and now since just in the past couple of years, I've had many of them come back and say, "Hey, thank you for sharing that stuff. I didn't know why you were." why you were telling us this at the time but it's been so relevant in these last couple of years so maybe we'll circle back around and ask you a couple questions on that topic at the end but um sure. we wanted it to hit you up you know with um there was a pastor we we spoke on on last week's podcast jared yeah that had um recently taken his life um and you know was dealing with depression and anxiety and yes. so, so much was floating around that topic, and so many people were asking us to to comment on it. And I immediately thought, man, I would love to get Dr. Mullen to speak into this because I know you have uh, experienced that yourself, and yes. also written on it in depth from a not just a not just the practical parts, but also kind of the underlying. Uh, right. philosophy and framework behind it. So that's why we're so grateful to have you to talk about this new this book you've recently written uh, entitled Finding yeah. Quiet. So maybe uh, as, we're, as we're diving in here, I think, what was that question you wanted to start with, Nerva, was it? Sure. I heard you mention on another, another interview once that life as we go about it today, typical routine doesn't set itself up for human or mental flourishing or mental health. Could you yeah. speak into that a little bit? Well, I think, uh, I, I think from, from the research I've done, which is really pretty extensive, it's clear that anxiety and uh, depression are so widespread that they are major epidemics. And uh, anxiety is the number one mental or psychological uh, issue that uh, Americans are facing. I think it's almost 20% of Americans over the age of 18 have had a major uh, health crisis, uh, mental health crisis and anxiety in the last year. Not not just worry, a major mm. problem with panic attacks and so on. And it's worse uh, 
under 18. And, and there are a lot of reasons for this, but just, just a, a handful of them. There are three that really stand out. One is that uh, the pace of life we live, and uh, that includes having technology available all the time and, and, the, and not knowing how to be quiet and rest your mind and not have it racing. So we, re- we lead a very fast-paced life. Uh, the second one is a, a, a kind of a breakdown in the ability to connect deeply in community with others or to have a group of really close friends that you can really get down and dirty and, and share what's going on and there's a supportive environment. So there's an individualism and, 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 and community online doesn't substitute for that. Interestingly, right. the third reason is uh, the widespread acceptance of moral relativism. Hmm. Uh, believe it or not, and these are from secular psychologists, and you might think, well, how does that fit in? Well, um, if you're going to have hope that you can get well from depression and anxiety, you have to assume that there are right ways to go about life, and there are uh, wrong ways to go about life, and what you want to learn are the right ways to go about it that will increase your chances of having peace and joy and being loving and so on. But if you're a relativist, there just are no right or wrong ways. Uh, whatever you choose to believe is right for you. And, and that, when you're facing something like anxiety, that deep in your heart doesn't do the trick. And so for those reasons, people are sort of untethered. They're free-floating. And I think even Christians who don't have a grounding for their faith uh, sort of have adopted secular ways of uh, believing and thinking Mm. without knowing or trying to. So I think that's partly what's going on uh, today that's making this worse. Hmm. Dr. Moreland, I grew up in a church where mental health was not really talked about much, and depression and anxiety were pretty taboo. And I honestly was not prepared to deal with it in my 10-year-old son. Uh, in the past couple of years. And uh, that's something we've been working through, and maybe we can get back to that later. But you talk about your experience in your book, and it seemed very intense, and it seemed to happen later in life. Did you have any, and I know you talk about, you do have a family history of it, but were you totally caught off guard by it? And and do you feel like um, we need to be prepared for it, and maybe the church can help prepare uh, people to deal with this more? Absolutely. Well, I have a genetic predisposition to an anxiety disorder because it runs on my mom's side of the family very clearly. Mm-hmm. Can trace trace it through at least four generations. Wow. Secondly, uh, uh, I I grew up in a home where there was a lot of uh, fear and worry and anxiety up up until I left and went to college. So I had anxiety and um, was um, would be more anxious than the average person and um, you know sometimes it was worse and sometimes it was better but I never got to the point where it it kind of just knocked me off my feet mm. um, so uh, what in 2003 I had uh, had the worst most stressful year of teaching and other things I'd ever had and the day school was over I sort of let down and boom I had started having panic attacks my uh, heart was beating through my chest Uh, I was sweating I was my body felt like there was adrenalized electricity all over it especially in my chest and uh, that began a seven-month period where I was uh, really kind of knocked out and dysfunctional. Uh, I laid in a fetal position on the couch for about a month. When the phone rang, it scared me to death. Mm. Uh, I did not want to check my email, I was afraid. I was afraid to have uh, people over the house or to drive on the highway. I I just was kind of demobilized and I, I, I got on medication, and I'm a, I'm a big advocate of uh, uh, psychiatric medications as a tool. 
I would never recommend them as the only thing a person does. Hmm. But uh, under the supervision of a doctor or psychiatrist, uh, they can be tremendously helpful uh, to most people. Uh, so I, I got into counseling, Christian counseling. I, I continued to try to read and, and pray without obsessing on my problems. And after seven, and, and the meds, and after seven months, I got better. And then for about 10 years, I was, I was okay. But it happened to me again in, uh, at the end of the school year. And I was just thinking before the phone call, uh, your phone call, that it was the second worst year of teaching in 30-some years of teaching. It was so mm -hmm. stressful. And I didn't handle it well. And I was, uh, so at the end of the school year, of 2013 it happened again and so I believe the Lord spoke to me and said I want I'll, I'll help you but I want you to use your research skills to read everything you can about anxiety and I want you to boil down what you learn to a small set of principles that you start practicing and then I want you to share them with my people and so my book finding quiet is just my attempt not to waste my own suffering but to uh, have it do some good for other people, because I'm a fellow sufferer. And uh, the church um, has a tremendous opportunity mm -hmm. to talk about this problem, to bring it out in the open, to give people permission to, be, to have anxiety and depression without feeling embarrassed or ashamed, right. and uh, to get help, because there are... Uh, the spiritual side and the Christian faith provide tremendous resources uh, w w to help. Uh, and so, yes, and, and, and I had some anxiety as a young boy. Hmm. Um, I, I, but I, you know, I, I was basically functional. Can you uh, speak to the differences between anxiety and depression? How are they similar and how are they different and, and when is it time to get help? Good question. Um, well, a a anxiety is, is when you have a heightened sense of, of fear and worry and uh, you, it is hard for you to get your your mind off of it. The, you, the, the part of your brain called the amygdala kicks in and, and it controls uh, your soul's um, ability to feel anxiety and so it kicks into a fight-flight mechanism. Uh, depression is a feeling of uh, helplessness, discouragement, nothing nothing that you used to like feels fun or is is meaningful to you and um, you know you just you, you don't want to get up and and the, the interesting thing is that um, you can have depression without anxiety. you can have anxiety without depression. You can have anxiety that then causes depression, or you can have depression that causes anxiety. And mine was primarily just the anxiety part. I had a little depression because I got weary of being afraid every day. But uh, so it can be a both hand. And and the way you know when when you you need help is when um, it starts. Um, uh, distorting your life and um, taking you to where you're not able to live your life in, in, in a normal um, way and, and uh, so at that point it, you, whatever you're doing isn't working and you need, you need help. So while you were researching, you said God kind of led you into a time of study. Were you in process of still battling with that or coming over it, or had you overcome it? Uh, in the early stages. The, uh, the second uh, nervous breakdown I had lasted five months, and I began doing this research about two and a half months into it, and it lasted about a year. And uh, so... Uh, I kept I kept researching when I when I got out of it, 
but it did begin kind of right in the middle of that time period. JP, before we jump into kind of some of the practical things you lay out in the book, which are so helpful, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I think makes this a unique book in this field, which is the fact that it's written by a philosopher, a Christian yeah. philosopher at that, but specifically, um, one of the main contributions I think you've made and led the field in is the area of mind-body dualism and um, yeah. you know, consciousness, the study of those things. And with the human person, it seems to me that it really you're really going to need a good sketch of at least semi-accurate anthropology, like what are what are human beings to make much progress with dealing with this issue? Yes, I think you're right. And I'm thinking, um, you know, one of the things I think that's just in the water that we're not often aware of is, at least as I see it in our culture, we tend to think the mind just is the brain or the person is yes. just like a physical, you know, organism. And I, I don't know if you saw, there's a new Netflix series on that they're really promoting right now called The Mind Explained. And I haven't watched it yet, but I but I predicted this last week. I'm going to try to watch it sometime down the road. But I said probably, I, I, I predict that on that show, they e- will either uncritically conflate the brain with the mind and just talk about them as they're the yeah. s- synonyms, or they'll explicitly state that we just are the our brain and they'll give some neuroscientific um, evidence for that claim. But I think your work, you've, you've really shown that that can't, neuroscience hasn't made that case at all. But I wonder if you might be able to give us kind of a light version of yes. a sketch of the human person and why it matters that we would know that when we deal with even right. issues like anxiety. I'd be glad to do that. One quick point is the mind explained, the very act of explaining something is not itself physical. Ooh, An explanation wow. is a mental act, <laughs> and um, uh, if you th- if you think of it, an explanation is something that we would call a normative state. In other words, if your explanation is intrinsically rational, uh, as opposed to its rivals, then you ought to believe it. So there is an oughtness or an intrinsic normativity about a, a, a the most reasonable explanation in the sense that it is the quote unquote best one. But no physical state is normative. Physical states of, uh, let, let's suppose you've got a beaker of water and it goes from liquid to ice. Those states just are. There isn't anything it ought to be. And your brain is just electrolyzed meat. It's just a, it's a it's it's a bunch of cells that have electrical and chemical activities that go on. So there's no brain state that ought that is normative. Uh, that it, 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 they just exist. Uh, matter just is. It's only mental states that can be intrinsically good or bad or right or wrong, and, and the actions that follow from them. Anyway, that's just, it's so bizarre that, that, that anybody would miss that. But anyway. Um, <laughs> no, I, did, the, I did say light, Dr. Moore. <laughs> but, but for our readers, if you read, uh, I think it's called the Recalcitrant uh, Imago Day book that you've written, you'll realize that that actually was light for Dr. Moore. But anyway, <laughs> but continue on. So brilliant. Well, um, um, the, I'll just state this. Uh, the human person is a soul uh, that that is embodied. Now, the soul is uh, an immaterial uh, substance or thing that contains consciousness and animates the body. So the soul contains consciousness. The brain does not contain thoughts. It does not contain memories. It doesn't have emotions in it. Uh, The the brain, uh, the soul is what contains your sensations, your feelings, your thoughts, your beliefs, your desires. Uh, it's because you have, you're a soul that you can act freely. If you were your brain, you would be completely determined in your behavior by the laws of uh, chemistry, physics, and biology. And so uh, you are a soul, and um, your soul has what I call faculties or compartments. For example, one compartment of the soul is the mind. Uh, one compartment of the soul are, is the faculty of your emotions, and the, uh, you have a faculty of will. I believe you have a faculty of spirit, 
which is your ab- your pa- abilities to be aware of the unseen world, be aware of God. I've been aware of demons before, and I know people who've been directly aware of angels. Uh, that I think is because of a spiritual faculty. Hmm. Now, when you're in the when you're in the body, there is a very very deep connection between the functioning of the soul and its faculties and the functioning of the organs of the body. Uh, that's why Paul says in Romans 6 that we're to present the organs of our body. He says members, but he means by that your stomach and your lungs and your brain to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, now I'll, I'll get in a little bit later to what that means, but the point is that um, if your bre- if your eyes are poked out, your soul still has the ability to see, but it doesn't have the tools it needs to activate that ability. So you're blind. Mm-hmm. If your brain chemistry is messed up, then your your soul is not is going to feel fear and depression and other things like that. And so we are a soul that has a psychological aspect to it. That, we have a spiritual aspect to the soul because we have a compartment of spirit and there is a biological neurological or just bodily aspect to us that's why when people uh, are, are against medications or, or or have no role for training the body uh, to cooperate with the soul they're, they're, they have a they they're treating us as as angels, well, like we don't have bodies, and and that is profoundly unbiblical. So the important thing about the model is that it 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 shows that the body plays an essential role in spiritual and psychological health, and that's the that's it's all of the above. It's not just one thing. So, Dr. Moreland, just a quick aside, and we don't have to spend too much time on it, but what is your stance on the idea of, I hear you explaining a dualism for human beings. There's also some that believe in a trichotomy of man. Well, I'm a trichotomy. Yeah, let me just interrupt real quickly. Um, Trichotomists are dualists. Hmm. Uh, That means they believe that there is a spiritual soul that's not the same thing as a body. Right. Okay? So now the question becomes... Is this, how, how does the soul relate to the spirit? Are they the same thing? I believe that the spirit is a faculty of the soul. I don't believe there are two different things in my body. Right. There's this spiritual thing, spirit thing, and the soul thing. I think that the soul has a lot of compartments, and one of them is a spiritual faculty. Mm-hmm. And I call that the spirit. Um, it is a part of the soul. It, 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 it's a stands in a partial relation like the sock drawer stands to the entire chest of drawers. Okay. Animals don't have sock drawers, so, so their souls don't have spirits, uh, but they might have a t-shirt drawer, meaning they might have uh, a power of sensation and feeling pain and so on, but, but uh, the animal soul is just very different than the human soul. That's, That's good. good. Um, <laughs> You might get a kick out of the story, Doctor Moore, but before, before my wife understood my uh, fetish with go. apologetics, <laughs> and she would see all these books coming in from Amazon, there was one time it was actually close to uh, it was actually shortly after nine eleven. But my wife and I travel a lot, so we were coming back from uh, London. Oh, I remember that. And I, I had like I don't know why, but I just I, in my book bag that particular day I had like three books in there, and it the people began to search and pull out my books. And one of them was by you and Gary Habermas called beyond death. And the other two <laughs> yeah. books made it look like I had a terrorist starter kit. True. Like in my That's wife. So oh my, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so they pull out beyond death and you should have seen them looking at this book. And my wife's just over there shaking her head. Like, see, 
I knew you was going to oh, be. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I knew you and your oh, reading dude, would be the you death you should have thrown me. that in the dumpster, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't even thought about it, but I was like, this is the wrong book to have right. at this UK airport. You bet. Right now in London. You better Heathrow. believe it. <laughs> right? But uh, I was like, I promise y'all, I'm not trying to get there soon. But this book is really good. But, you know, in that book, you guys actually referenced a lot of near-death experiences. And I, and I thought, man, they were really compelling about how people were their brains were dead and in some cases they were they were able to see things or hear conversations that yep. couldn't be explained yes. scientifically can you maybe share just one of those stories and 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 I think that might even help our listeners understand that there is a distinction even though we're a deep unity while we're in the body there is a distinction between soul and body well yeah i mean an illustration if i'm in a car and driving in the driver's seat but i'm i'm seat belted in and it's locked and the doors are locked and I can't get out of the seat, then my ability to drive around town depends on whether the car is working. If the steering wheel breaks down, I can't mm. move. Yeah. But that doesn't prove on the car. Now, mm. if I can get out of the car, then it doesn't matter that the steering wheel's broken. I can, I can move around town uh, all I want. And the same thing's true. I mean, there was a a doctor named uh, Chauncey Crandall, who was the uh, head cardiologist in, uh, I believe it's Palm Beach, Florida, for for 20 years. This, uh, he's been uh, the chief cardiologist and the director of that center. And what, when he first got going as a as a newly minted car, uh, cardiologist, there was this huge gang member that was tattooed all over his body that. Um, that weighed about 260 and was all muscle and his heart lining of his heart was so thin that it, his heart was a, was running the risk of literally exploding and so uh, Cranville went in uh, to do surgery on him to insert a balloon in his heart and blow it up so that it would reinforce the law, uh, lining, the walls and about a third of the way through the surgery, this guy codes and dies. Um, and um, he has no brain waves, he, he is, he, there's no heartbeat. He is starting, to, he, he, he'd been dead long enough to where a gag reflex was no longer present. He was turning cold. And uh, he called a code blue, and there were doctors and nurses all over the place. Um, one of the nurses, uh, uh, was running from one place to another and ran through his, uh, uh, you know, the line they insert to give you anesthesia, and it and it pulled it out of the guy's arm and it fell underneath the uh, operating table and Chauncey Crandall was down on his hands and knees trying to find the darn thing and plug it back in even though the guy was dead, and uh, the uh, defibrillators. W- wouldn't work, and so this <clears throat> this this one nurse uh, tried to plug it into a different socket. They tried it again, and it didn't work. And they tried about three or four sockets, thinking that maybe it was the wall socket, and it, it, none of it worked. And so they ran down the hall to the radiology uh, department and got another defibrillator and came back and de- and kept trying to bring him back and finally he, he came back after being gone I don't know how long it was 20 or 30 minutes hmm. and uh, so the team was so exhausted that they, they just they, they all went home <laughs> and they had <laughs> other people take care of him and they do the surgery you know in a couple of days when he was kind of better and so he went in the next morning to do his rounds and he passed by this guy's room and uh, uh, he assumed that he'd be knocked out in his sleep, and so he just walked past his door, and uh, he got past it, and a little bit he felt his feet being pulled off the ground. And, and, and this guy had grabbed his lab coat and lifted him off the ground that said, why in the blank did you bring me back? Huh. And Crandall says if you let me down maybe we could talk about it and he said well yeah. so he did and I, he said well I'm a doctor and he said look I this guy wasn't wasn't a believer by the way and he he left his he told him exactly what had happened he said 
I saw the whole thing from up on the ceiling. I, I saw you crawling like a pig under the operating table to try to get my uh, intravenous line that the nurse knocked out of my arm. Um, I saw the gal trying to plug in the defibrillator and all the sockets and had to leave and get another one. And, and he said, I was watching the whole thing, and, I, and, and uh, Jesus was there, and he told me that, that it wasn't my time and that I was to come back and to believe in him and serve him, and I didn't want to come back. I, I wanted to stay, and you brought me back, and I'm mad. Well, this guy, eventually, he, he got saved, and he, I think he went, into, went to Bible school or something like that. But, I mean, there's no way to explain that away. And you can say, well, Crandall's lying. Well, the problem is that he's the head of this, he's been the head of this clinic, and he's got nurses and other doctors who work, have worked with them every day for 15 years, and, and they, they would know if he was lying or not. Uh, and so, we, and even if he was lying, there's thousands and thousands of reports of these. Mm. And at some point, you just have to say they're they're real. So, wow, that's amazing. Well, Doctor Moreland, uh, your book Finding Quiet uh, was especially important to me and my family. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, our son, he was eight years old at the time, and now he's ten, started experiencing bouts of anxiety, and we were totally unprepared for it. Uh, but through a course yes. of events, and we went through counseling, Christian counseling, and read other books, and uh, and your book also uh, has really helped. And so there's a couple of things that you talk about in your book, practical steps uh, to help deal with anxiety. And uh, last week on the show, we talked about uh, your four-step solution, your relabeling, reframing, refocusing, and revaluing. And you also yes. talk about the heart math solution when dealing with thoughts. And I know for my son, a lot of times he will get obsessed with a thought or a worry. Yes. Sometimes it's he doesn't know if he's going to throw up or he doesn't know he's worried about something. And just breaking that cycle can help. So maybe whichever you prefer or both, if you could maybe touch on either the, the heart math solution or the four-step solution and kind of help those maybe dealing with anxiety and are just yeah, stepping into these bet. waters. You bet. Well, th- th- uh, and I'm so sorry to hear about this. Man, uh, 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 let's hope and pray he gets through it. I'm sure he will. And he's been much better recently, for sure. Just, I'm so glad. And we've learned much as parents in the process, for sure. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. And share what you've learned with others. Um, yeah, the, the, the problem is that... Um, you, if you think a thought and, and engage in certain thoughts and self-talk, um, it, you, it digs a groove in your brain. And the more that you battle this thought and and wrestle with it, the deeper you dig these brain grooves. And there are also grooves that are dug in the heart muscle mm-hmm. uh, because the heart muscle has got a lot of neurons in it. I think it's something like 40,000 neurons, and they... There, there, there's something going on there too, and I think that's scriptural. But the point is that it, it, what you've got to do is you've got to get rid of those grooves and replace them with good grooves. And what I want, the main thing I learned in my research is that anxiety is largely, not entirely, but largely a learned habit that can be unlearned with the right practices. And it's just like a bad habit in golf or penmanship or in cooking or whatever it might be. Um, we, we get into habits of, uh, of fear and, and obsession and so on. And we have to develop some techniques that we can start practicing to get out of that. Now, when you, when you're trying to practice, and I'll, I'll say something about these specifically, but when you're starting to develop a new habit and you start doing something like practicing a tennis serve, let's say, you're, you're going to be lousy at it for weeks. <laughs> and it's not going to be any fun. It's not going to do you any good to go out there and, and hit that tennis ball across the net because you're going to hit it over the fence and you're going to drive them into the net and it's you're going to think you're making no progress. Well, um, you have to if you stick with it. However, eventually a good serve will become second nature and you won't even have to think about it. You'll just do it. Well, that's what's true of anxiety and and, and depression in, in large measure. 
um, because we have these ways of talking, and, and the four-step solution that you talked about last time is a way of trying to gain control over these and to dismiss them and to move away from obsessing on them. And another way to do it is with what medical doctors have discovered, and it's called the heart math solution. This, this is not a new age practice. I've been accused online of being an advocating new age uh, spirituality. Um, I, I don't have any interest in, in new age spirituality. Uh, this is a, something doctors discovered and it's essentially that if, if you have an obsessive thought and you're not able to just get busy doing something else and dismiss it, there is something you can do. And the, and the first thing is you can tell the, the thought, it's called freezing it. You can say, wait a minute, um, I'll get back to you in just a bit. Uh, don't worry, I'll think about you again. <laughs> you know, I mean, because it demands attention. Say, I'll come back to you, but for a minute I'm just going to want to leave. And then you focus your attention on your chest. Uh, because, you know, when you have anxiety, that chest area is pretty important. Mm. And you, you just pay attention and try to feel. Uh, I would sometimes just tap my heart area with my fingers and and until I my, I my focused attention is on whatever is going on in my heart area, in the area of my chest. Now, even if there's nothing going on there, I want to be aware of that. Whatever's there, I don't reject it. I just let it be there. Then, while I'm doing that, I will try to go to a memory uh, uh, where something wonderful happened. Either, either I, I, I received... Uh, uh, something that I appreciated deeply or I was forgiven or, or loved or there was a, um, a, a, a real uh, a compassionate experience that I had where I just felt so much love from a friend or something like that. And what you do is you go to that memory until the emotion that you experienced when that event happened is you're feeling that again. And, and you want to feel that right there in your heart area. And so you do it until in your chest, the, let's say the emotion of very, very warm love from a friend in a specific occasion is right there. And then while holding that emotion, you go back to the thought that was driving you crazy and you drag it down you pretend that you're dragging it down into your chest and letting the emotion of that good memory smother it and snuff it out. Mm. And what that does is it it takes the power out of the thought and it and it actually starts associating a warm emotion with that thought so it's no longer intimidating. Now you have to practice this. Uh, but uh, anywhere from 22 days to till four months, if you work at this, uh, it will it will change and help you get rid of those obsessive thoughts. Wow, yeah, that's really really helpful. And I love in this book you point out so many practical things that really help. And I know you you have even shared. I've heard you on other interviews where you said you shared the things in this book because it actually worked for you. Yeah, I did. You're exactly right. And I know you've even had some uh, health battles lately, which we've actually we've been uh, praying for you, and that will continue oh, to pray for you. Thank you. you. Um, but you said you've even walked through like I, I don't know, it was like eight surgeries in the past few years, where and you've been almost like anxiety free and described. I was. It was. I was completely free anxiety. Wow. I I uh, in August of 2015, I. Uh, in, earlier, I found that I had prostate cancer. It was pretty widespread, and so I had a very five-hour surgery, uh, and uh, I ended up having a life-threatening tumor in my colon that had 31 lymph nodes involved with it. Uh, one was malignant that had poked through the wall, and so they removed it, they hoped, and I had to have uh, chemo. And um, I, I ended up having another cancer that is so 
is so odd. It's called Lynch-Murtori syndrome. Nobody would ever heard of it in my, of all my doctors and surgeons. So, um, I, I, and then I had, I ended up having eight surgeries as well as radiation and chemo. And with the chemo, I would go into the chemo center. This was every other week for six months. And I would be there for about three to four hours, sometimes five. And I would receive um, uh, three uh, chemo drugs. And then uh, I'd had a surgically implanted port in my chest that had a line that went straight to my heart and um, they would insert uh, a fourth chemo drug that was so strong that you couldn't take it in just a five-hour period. So they would tuck the, the little chemo bag inside this uh, thing I carried around that was about the size of a lunch box. And um, I wore that for 48 hours, and, uh, and, and it slowly, it just would slowly pump this uh, chemo in me over a longer period of time so my body could could take it. I lectured with that thing. I mean, I still taught, and I, wow. I put, the, put the darn pump there. You know, one time I actually forgot it was there, and I get up to write something on the board, and I pulled the darn thing out, and it was bleeding, oh. and I had to ride to drive to the center and have them stick the thing back in but oh during that time I was just peaceful and I had joy and I was and I you know honestly I'm not the kind of person that, that makes stuff up my wife and my daughters and my friends were all just so uh, encouraged at, at the fact that I just didn't seem to to worry about anything and I was just at peace it didn't bother me one of the things that I learned was not to live in the future, and uh, I did that my whole life. And uh, the four-step solution that you talked about last week uh, helped me tremendously in my what-ifing. Gosh, what if this happens? And then I'd catastrophize it, and it would be, oh, my gosh. Hmm. Well, I, I, I learned when I, if, when I started doing that to stop and move to something else and uh, to quit doing it. And so there were times I didn't know I had surgery in, uh, that week. Uh, I'd get, you know, Sunday I'd look at my week to, to see what was going on. And that I, if, if I had to do stuff Monday for a Thursday class, well, then I'd, you know, plan. But then I forgot about the week in hopes that don't forget you got surgery on, on Friday. And I said, oh, shoot, I forgot about that. Of course, I would have looked it up in time. But the point I'm making is that I was so living in the present, and I never, I had n never my whole life been able to do that. And it was some of the practices I learned that I formed the habit of not going there. And it, it is transformative uh, to, to form those new habits and dependence on the spirit, which I constantly yielded. Uh, to his strength and his empowering and uh, and so on. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes yes. Too much. Too much. Sense. Too much sense. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I know we're run, we're starting to get short on time here. I got like two and a half questions <laughs> that All I'm right. hoping to kind of run through real quick. Um, but one is one of the things I, I I benefited from particularly in your ministry and teaching is just balance and the integration that you bring between different fields. And I think you know someone someone like you you wouldn't think would be someone who had experienced the miraculous and also talked about the manifest presence yes. of God. But you bring all that together, and you've seen healings. You been a part of all that stuff but at the same right. time you've seen you've been a part of stuff where you said where, where it's it looked like god would have stepped in and he didn't and you've talked about stuff like the hiddenness of god and what to do right when when you're suffering and you don't get the answered prayer and i know you addressed that a little bit in the book can you maybe speak to that in this context yeah i've seen enough i've seen enough miracles and i have close friends who've seen experienced miracles that there's no doubt in my mind that, that God is absolutely real and that he's still doing things today like he did in the book of Acts. I have no question about that. But there are times when God is, is, is disgusting when you know show. And I mean, you, 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 
you'd think, you know, Lord, this would not only be helpful to me and, and the, the person we're praying for, but you'd get a lot out of it. I mean, you'd get honored and praised, and it'd increase people's faith, and yet, you know, God just doesn't seem to show up. And um, those, are, those are the most difficult thing. If people say, well, what's your biggest problem with Christianity, and that's it. It, it is the... It is when God doesn't seem to be involved when He ought to be, and and I got to tell you, twenty I think it's like twenty eight percent of the Psalms are lament Psalms, and those are complaints against God for not honoring His covenant or for not you know taking care of His people like He promised. Now, of course, at the end of the day, we 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 know that God is faithful and so on, but I mean you got to be honest about it. There are times when you're thinking, man, it doesn't look that way to me. And I have a chapter in the book about how I processed that and uh, ended up getting peace with it. But it's tough. That's a tough issue. It doesn't make me doubt God's existence. It it it, it tends to make me uh, not want to pray. Because I think, well, what's the difference? What different? God's not going to show anyway. But then I, all the times I have seen it kick in, and I'm reminded, well, but you know what? He has, he has done things in answer to prayer. So it's kind of a part of the journey, I think. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's so good. Um, well, in, in the integration thought, I'm, I was wanting to ask this question is you know you you kind of take this holistic approach to anxiety and depression like you know check check your brain chemistry check your spiritual practices develop new habits are there times when we also have to see man is there something demonic going on here and how do we go about asking that absolutely and searching that out we hope you enjoyed this interview with dr jp moreland if you'd like to hear the answer to this question and more. We actually talked for a little while longer, and you can find that episode only on patreon.com slash freemindfm. So that's one of our bonus episodes on the feed. If you support the show with any amount, you get access to this bonus episode and all of our previous bonus episodes together. So go to patreon.com slash freemindfm, and you can hear the rest of our interview with Dr. J.P. Moreland. Again, we always like to hear your feedback at freemindfm on Instagram, Twitter, and freemindpodcast.fm on Facebook. We got we got 97 reviews now. I saw we're trying that. To, we're all close to so that close. 100, y'all. It is very close. Just three more. Can I get three witnesses? Hey. <laughs> so we have it, 97 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so, so much happy about for that. doing that. And so keeping that five-star rating strong. But if you have not yet, we would really appreciate. You can go to iTunes if you're on that Windows Life. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> go to that. Is it all iTunes. right? If you, if you don't have an iPhone, borrow your friends. Borrow your, uh, your wife's, your kids, whoever. Whoever. <laughs> get iPod Touch. doesn't matter. Because it really does help us, right? It helps people it discover. We're able to get more and more interviews with people and get more sponsors, all that kind of stuff. Yes. It's all connected to stars and, it, and, and it reviews. And it puts Free Mind higher in search results. So if people search for Christianity or worldview or apologetics, again, the more five-star reviews we get, the higher and better uh, chance it gets to be seen by those who have maybe never heard of the show. So five-star rating with a comment would be awesome in Apple Podcasts or or in iTunes. We'd appreciate it there. And uh, if you'd like to send us an email, maybe you have ideas for some future topics or future guests, you can email us at podcast at freemind.fm. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Hey.